0: from Kirkco Media.
1: Coming up on the show.
0: So bottom line here is that this is a critical care treatment. It does its job, it saves lives. So now the question in the end is, are you willing to risk your life a little bit for your vocal cords? Mm, Probably not.
2: Today we continue our Johns Hopkins series here at Medicine, We're Still Practicing. As one of the highest regarded healthcare institutions in the country, Johns Hopkins seems to have no end to the roster of specialists who bring us the edge of the art in research, medicine, and patient care. Whether due to the COVID pandemic or due to critical heart and lung diseases, you may have known people who've had to be intubated, receive a breathing tube, and spend time on a ventilator in an ICU. So firstly, if they've made it home, we have doctors to thank for that. One of the many doctors responsible for Johns Hopkins reputation is Dr. Martin Brodsky, and he's here with us today on Medicine We're Still Practicing. I'm Bill Curtis. First, one of the psychological saving graces we've all had during pandemic-filled months of quarantine was the ability to connect with family and friends by Zoom. Almost every weekend, I've looked forward to connecting with my best friend, Dr. Stephen Tabak. He's also our host here at Medicine We're Still Practicing, and Steve is the quadruple board-certified doctor of internal medicine, pulmonary disease, critical care, and neurocritical care, and he's still on the front lines of the war on COVID at his ICU out in California. How you doing, Steve?
1: Hey, Bill. How are
2: you? So as you heard, our special guest joining from Johns Hopkins Medicine is Dr. Martin Brodsky. He is an associate professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation. He's also a fellow of the American Speech and Language Hearing Association, and his research and expertise is focused on swallowing disorders and the airway. More specifically, these days he works on optimizing long-term outcomes and the effects of critical illness and critical care medicine. Dr. Brodsky, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to join you. So being the layman, before Dr. Steve asks some intelligent questions, I need to ask this one. What exactly is dysphagia? Simply put, it's a swallowing disorder. The more elaborate
0: explanation is everything from the lips to the stomach that causes things to either be not controlled, have food go down the wrong way. We've all heard of the individual who food went down the wrong way or they choked on a piece of steak or water went up their nose and it came out their nose. All of these could be signs of the larger problem in that it was an uncoordinated act of swallowing. Marty, what got
1: you involved in this? What is it that did you to, to devote your life to, to this
0: issue? As ridiculous as this sounds, I was actually on the other side of the bed rail. I found myself after an accident that I had in my mid-20s. Intubated for 10 days, waking up, finding myself with a nasogastric tube. Some days later, when I came to some sense, I won't say the delirium was completely gone. I'll say it was quite a frustrating experience. But at some point when I was certainly more lucid, it got to the point where the physicians back then, and this was the mid-90s, didn't want to feed me that the feeding was taking place literally 100% through the NG tube. And to give you some idea where I was in my career, I was literally a month from beginning my clinical fellowship following my master's degree in speech pathology. To contrast
1: and compare for us what you do today that was so metrically opposed to the treatment or lack of treatment received in the 90s.
0: So I would say the biggest contrast certainly in the environment I'm in right now is the fact that a speech pathologist
2: is actually there. We haven't found a lot of you in hospitals as we've looked at the various rosters. It's Well, you haven't been looking hard enough.
0: <laughs> We're there. We're uh, not often invited into the ICUs. This has been one of the biggest thrusts that I've had in my career, certainly over the last decade or more, in trying to get speech-language pathologists into the ICU to be more recognized in the ICU. We've always been there, but the numbers, as you said, both of you, were not there at the time. It's only been within the last, certainly the last 10 years, I'd argue more so even in the last five years, that greater attention has been placed of speech-language pathologists being in the ICUs and treating patients on mechanical ventilators with or without a tracheostomy. So the reality is, yes, we would like to be
2: involved. And what would you do during that involvement when the tube is still inserted, but there's a certain amount of awakeness there?
0: Depending on what the need is. So communication is always going to be a need at that point. When you've got a tube between somebody's vocal cords, the ability to voice is gone. So the best you'll have is lip reading. And I don't know about you. I've been in my career for more than two and a half decades, and I'm not so adept at reading lips. Steve, you've been doing this for more than 30 years. Are you good at this? Terrible.
1: I mean, the patient will lie there in bed and you're trying to ask a simple question and no way they can themselves understood. And then they try to write. For whatever reason, something about lying in bed, a little bit out of it, and you can make out a letter or two, and then it becomes almost just scribble. So communication is a real impediment, especially in this day and age. The critical care side, our goal is everybody as awake as possible if they can tolerate it. In the early years, we'd sedate them. Oh, you've got a tube? sedate them until you extubate. Not anymore when we're talking about cognitive impairment, which we'll get to, you know, hopefully a little later in the show, but our goal is to keep everybody awake. But how do you communicate? So tell us more.
0: And you hit the nail right on the head. And that, in fact, goes back to the mid-90s where it's sedate them, make them feel better by sedating them. You're keeping them from having pain. You're keeping them from moving. Etc. Etc. And then suddenly we wake them up and the tube comes out and life is magic again. Now that is clearly not the case. So the reality here is, yes, once the patient is able to be interactive, we are able to work with the patient and whether it's writing and writing has its own difficulties because of ICU acquired weakness, Perhaps the patient's even restrained with soft restraints to keep from pulling it. the lines, the tubes, the drains, and so forth. So you have the added obstacle, if you will, of even if the patient is strong enough to be able to put a marker in their hand with a whiteboard, it's lifting their arm off the bed to be able to write on the whiteboard, which is another issue.
1: Is that going to help ultimately better or swallow better as they've been liberated from the ventilator?
0: So. In the first place, working with people to get them communicating gets them more involved in their own patient care. That's a big issue for patients. We've known that for some time. And getting a speech-language pathologist to maximize that communication, and whether it's a letter board, maybe it's a basic communication board that says, I need to go to the bathroom, my back itches, my arm is in pain, whatever it might be, is a lot more than even trying to read their lips. There's eye gaze that you can use for the simple yes and no questions. There are technology that's available to track their eyes and to be able to communicate much the way that you saw in the past, Stephen Hawking do it. Now he had a more advanced communication board, but you can see that there really is a continuum there that we're able to meet the patient's needs and meet the communication needs where you have the communication even with the nurse or the physicians or the therapists that walk into the room and the
2: patient has a question or needs to tell you how they're feeling. There's something I don't understand. If there's risk and rehabilitation attached to the idea of putting a tube past my vocal cords, and if I want to preserve my beautiful soprano singing voice... Is it potentially better to go with a trach rather than go to put a tube down my throat and deal with all of the risks and, and rehabilitation attached to that?
0: In all honesty, yes. What raises a really good point, and this is now a very long debate and a very well and hotly debated issue, essentially the endotracheal tube is that breathing tube that goes through your mouth, sometimes through your nose, down into your throat. Past your vocal cords into your lower airway and gives you the pressure, the airflow, and the oxygen that you need to keep the respiratory system and the cardiovascular system
2: alive, if you will.
0: That's the path of least resistance, right? No cutting, no blood, there's no problem. We just need to shove a straw down your throat and here you go. There's how you breathe. It's something similar to a snorkel, except it's inside you. Well, that's all good because supposedly, if we're not cutting your neck and putting a tube in your neck that way, then we're keeping you from getting any kind of infection, we're keeping you from having any kind of scarring, we're keeping you from having all sorts of issues that can arise inside the airway that way. Basically, stated
1: another way, it's, you're talking about a surgical procedure, yeah. right?
0: In order to cut a hole in your
1: throat, yes, you bypass the vocal cords, vocal cords will not be damaged, but you are subjecting a patient to a surgical procedure that could have major hemorrhagic complications. Now, it's very rare. I mean, hands of an experienced be ear, nose, and throat or surgeon. Hands of an experienced practitioner, risk is low. It's still a surgical procedure where you could be hitting an artery, lead to severe tragic complications. Say, put this tube down your throat for five days, star, you're not going to have vocal cord damage.
0: Would you choose? So those are the negative effects of a trach, right? The negative effects of the endotracheal tube uh, we've kind of alluded to is because you're passing the vocal cords. And let's say Steve and his colleagues do everything perfectly, that the tube goes in, they don't touch a thing on the way down. Life is good; it's an atraumatic experience. That's only where the problems begin. It's not so much necessarily the procedure of placing the tube. It's the frequent irritation of the tube in the back of the airway, with the tube rubbing up and down, similar to the piston of a car, every time you press on the gas. Or breathe? Every single second that you breathe, every single second that you're rolling around in bed, you're moving or otherwise. And just think about this for a second. For normal breathing, you've got this going 12 to 20 times a minute. Now you got people who are in more distress, and we've seen respiratory rates with COVID specifically in the 50s and even in the 60s per minute. That's literally one breath a second rather than one every six seconds. The upshot here is in the end with any medical procedure, there are risks. Even when you take that aspirin late at night, there's maybe even a bleeding risk, right? So bottom line here is that this is a critical care treatment. It does its job. It saves lives. So now the question in the end is, are you willing to risk your life a little bit for your vocal cords? Probably not.
2: And vocal cords heal and swallowing heals. And this is all a matter of rehabilitation, or is there more risk than
0: that? There is risk. And right now we're working on a study. I've got an R01 in conjunction with Dale Needham and Vincia Pandian, who is a critical care nurse. We're taking a look at what these effects of critical care treatments are on the airway. There are some patients, miraculously, even eight days of intubation, they look similar to you and me who's never seen a tube. There are other patients that you take the tube out in five days and they look like a train wreck. With COVID patients that we've seen, they're the mixed bag between the train wreck and the train wreck that has more edema that's in the airway that we can barely even see the train wreck that's under the edema. Be very selfish here
1: and ask that there's probably, it won't be to their lives. But what can I do as an intensivist to minimize the damage? To optimize the outcome?
0: So, there are a couple studies that have done most recently. Speech language pathologists, otolaryngologists have had for a long time the notion that reducing the size of the tube is one of the biggest factors in reducing the amount of injury that can happen post extubation. There are a couple studies that have been released most recently, one from the group in Vanderbilt that was released at the end of 2019, I believe. And then another from the group in Denver, both of them are suggesting that tubes equal to or less than the 7.5 and even down to a 7.0 and lower will statistically significantly reduce the amount of injury in the airway. Now, I'm going to take a guess at what you might ask immediately because I've had this argument countless times and I'm still embattled with the argument. The folks working in the ICU, like yourself, the pulmonologists, the respiratory therapists, who are frequently managing people on the vent with regard to flows and pressures and oxygenation in whatever form, there are more or less prescriptive ideas relative to the size of the tube and the known rates that patients should be kept at, for example, for ARDS and so forth. In addition to the fact of the ever looming prospective bronchoscopy, where we need to be able to place the endoscope into the breathing tube as a conduit to take a look at the lower airways and still maintain oxygenation and pressure and so forth around the endoscope. The reality is that I think there needs to be a push to get those scopes a lot smaller. If that's one of the issues, the only thing that they're lacking is a light source because the camera's perfectly fine. I work with a 2.6 millimeter scope to take a look at the vocal cords to give you some idea. The bronchoscopes are well above four. But the predominance of that is the lighting. It's the light source. So if the light source were greater, we would be able to be just fine in shrinking the size of that scope.
1: Right. From my perspective, I have two issues. It's a little archaic because we can overcome it a bit, but of the tube, the greater the resistance. And so the harder the patient has to work breath, the harder it is for the patient to then be liberated when you're reducing the artificial support that you're giving the patient and the patient is breathing pretty much on their own resistance in the tube, it makes weaning a little bit more difficult. Now I say that the advent of pressure support is not a big an issue. Your issue though is patient who might be bleeding. Or patient who has, you know, copious secretions where you need to do a bronchoscopy to evacuate the secretions, a small scope could afford you the ability to look in the airways, but a lot of what we do at the bedside is clearing the airways, and you're going to need a larger bore scope. And in order to have a larger bore scope, you need to have a larger bore endotracheal tube. That becomes the debate.
2: So we're going to take a very quick breath and one swallow and we'll be right back with Johns Hopkins Dr. Martin Brodsky
1: a moment of your time a new podcast from Kurt Co Media currently 21 years old and today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take of
0: care smile. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your me, voice. Trust me, every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my like dreams. Her
2: fingers were facing me.
0: You can feel like your purpose and your worth is
2: really being it questioned. You're going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys
0: walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did, we never will, we just find one another. The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you.
1: And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at com slash a moment of your time.
2: Okay, we're back with Dr. Stephen Tabak and Martin Brodsky. Marty, I'm interested in what happens now. I'm in bed. I've yanked my tube out, or better yet, you guys took it out. Please, don't and do that. Yeah. I'm, feeling, <laughs> I'm feeling better, but I'm having some swallowing trouble. So what exactly do you do about it? So in our
0: ICUs, and it doesn't matter which ICU you're in in our hospital, you will get, under normal circumstances, a swallowing screening that will be performed by the nurses who are treating you. The swallowing screening is something that we refer to in the literature and what's been referred to in the professionals as the Yale Swallow Protocol. And basically what that is, it's a very brief test of your ability to answer yes and no questions. It's a very brief test for you to be able to follow very simple directions. And it's followed by the presentation of three ounces of water that are handed to you very often with a straw and a cup and you're asked to swallow the water continuously. The simple response is that if you cough or clear your throat or gurgle a little bit or you can't finish the water, those are probably indications that you're having difficulties. And at that point, then we go for the full speech-language pathology evaluation, where you have a speech-language pathologist come by, They'll do a cranial nerve exam, which basically takes a look at the sensation and the motor skills, your your muscles, how they're working all around your face and your neck and your ability to turn your head, all the things that make your tongue move along those lines. They'll do a brief cognitive evaluation with you, and they'll make some determination as to whether they'll be able to feed you at the bedside, trialing some liquids and foods that they bring to your bedside. If things go well, great. We're started on an oral diet in most cases, pending medical approval, and the patient is off and running. Likely no therapy at that point. However, if you're still having difficulties, we continue with an instrumental evaluation and the instrumental evaluation can take the form of either a video fluoroscopic swallow study, which is a x-ray in real time. It's a movie where we get to see the food being chewed up, prepared in your mouth, all the way going down through your throat and into your stomach. Or we take a look at it endoscopically through a study called flexible endoscopic evaluation of swallowing where we place a very small endoscope into your nose. It hangs out in the back of your throat, and we watch the food go down your throat that way, determining whether it's going the right way or it's heading into the airway. And again, for the very same things that we do in both of those, it's not just the point of do they aspirate or not, meaning is there food or liquid getting into the airway or not?
2: So once you evaluate, Marty, like in my dad's case, for example, as he advanced in his age and he was in the hospital, he had issues where he would drink water and basically just enough of it was going down the wrong way to cause problems. Okay. The first question I have is, is it a problem with nerves or muscles or what is it that's creating that kind of problem?
0: So the breathing tube can be a combination of difficulties. We already know that the patient is weak simply by laying in the bed in the ICU. So you've got weakness going against you at that point. It's not just the muscles of your arms and legs and your trunk and your ability to maintain posture, tie your shoes, walk down the hallway. Swallowing is a combination of muscles too. And specifically, it's six cranial nerves and over 30 muscles are involved with this. So it's a very complicated system. So I've been arguing that the ICU and stays in the ICU, specifically with a breathing tube down your throat, makes the swallowing muscles weak as well. It's not just the body muscles. So that's the first issue. With regard to any kind of neurologic injury, that's always a possibility. But the reality is that we may not even know that in the acute phases of a person who just had an artificial airway of some sort. And we've removed that airway, and it's difficult to tell necessarily any neurological component without having had a disease or something that caused that neurologic injury. So, in other words, you could have some weakness of the vocal cords. You could have weakness of being able to protect your airway when you swallow. But is it weakness from the ICU? Is it neurologically related? Or is it tissue that's keeping you from being able to do that, such as under the conditions of swelling or what you call edema, or under the conditions of maybe even something along the lines of stenosis, where there's increased fibrin content in the tissues that prevent the closure or prevent movement from happening? Probably the answer is yes, right? It's a combination of everything. That's exactly right. Uh, And not to mention the potential for all of those heavy doses of medications that you had, arguably the neurological result of those medications may be involved as well.
2: What are some of the circumstances that lead to this if you didn't have a breathing tube? And you're just walking around and you suddenly have issues where you're noticing that your swallowing isn't perfected and you're allowing some water and other things to go down the wrong way.
0: There are any one of dozens of diagnoses that are linked to dysphagia or swallowing disorders. It could be everything from a surgery in the head and neck area. For example, head and neck cancer. They may have to sacrifice a nerve. They may have to remove parts because of the tumor and what was invaded. Okay. So that's an extreme example where you're literally altering the anatomy. Mm -hmm. Coming back down from that, let's say we don't even alter the anatomy. Let's say we just dose you with radiation just because you had throat cancer. The radiation itself wreaks havoc on the tissues, wreaks havoc specifically with the muscles, turns them hard, reduces sensation. There's those issues as well. So all of these being medical treatments, right? What about the patient who's had a stroke or a neurological injury, a head injury because they had a crash in a vehicle or fell out of bed and hit their head on a nightstand table and had a brain bleed as a result of it? All of these are potentials. All the way down to, and believe it or not, something so simple as dehydration or hypernatremia or what would be broadly the electrolyte imbalance. habitual alcohol usage. Or alcohol usage. Even a UTI, just an infection that's somewhere in the body, can cause these problems. So, you know, swallowing problems are generally caused by something else. They're not a primary problem like
2: infection or something along those lines. It sounds like you go through a process of elimination to figure out why is there a swallow issue? And do you then go into a, a kind of a physical therapy rehabilitation, or are there other things that you have to do first?
0: Yeah, we were talking a little earlier about those instrumental exams, the fees and the videofluoroscopic exam. Right. The primary thrust to doing those exams is to determine what's going on physiologically with swallowing. You know, again, one of the very small questions is, is food going the wrong way into the airway? That's fine. Sometimes we even know that at the bedside, but it's nice to confirm it under some sort of camera. The reality is that these exams, the gold where their weight is in gold is being able to try out some of the strategies that can help swallowing while the test is going on. So the whole point here is, we can give patients maneuvers to help their swallowing. We can put them into different postures with regard to their head and their neck, You know whether they turn their head, tuck their chin down, do something along those lines. These are the kinds of things, that's what tells us what can work and doesn't work to get them swallowing immediately. We call these compensatory strategies. Once we figure that out, and we know what the problem is from the exam, then we can do, as you say, the physical therapy for their swallowing. We can do the exercises. We can do the rehabilitative techniques that gets the physiology to improve and become more like normal swallowing. That's the whole point. That's exactly the point.
2: So if I may, you go through a process with bringing someone back to as normal a swallow as possible, and you help them to get discharged from the hospital. For those of us who are at home and grandpa comes home, what should we be watching out for as family that can give us an indication that perhaps there's a challenge here?
1: You add the corollary to that. What can the patient and family members do at home with the person who's suffered this illness or injury? To help improve the situation for them uh, without the aid of a therapist
0: so i think one of the big things is recognition sensitivity however you want to think about it just simply noticing that there is a problem so how do you notice what's a problem right how do you define what a problem is and what i would say is consistency of the behavior frequency of the behavior So every one of us, I have yet to be in a room with anybody who's not coughed or cleared their throat during a meal, but they only do it once or twice. They're not doing it on every swallow or every other swallow. And that's what I'm talking about. It's the consistency of the behavior and the frequency of the behavior. The occasional cough here and there, probably not a big deal. We all do it. But one that's happening persistently through a meal or even throughout the day, somebody may be coughing or clearing their throat frequently throughout the day. And again, separate from illness, okay? This is just on their own saliva, for example, or the drink of water that they have during lunch. These are the kinds of behaviors that you wanna be looking out for. So it's coughing, clearing their throat, choking. The inability to, once they've cleared their throat, get rid of the gurgly quality that they might have. We've all heard that kind of gurgly quality when it sounds like you're a little bit underwater and you have that mourning throat, if you will, before you, take, you brush your teeth or rinse your mouth out for the first time, you have kind of a deeper voice. If it's happening every meal, every other meal, maybe it's only happening with liquids and it's not happening with food. Maybe you're avoiding food because it's difficult to eat. I'm not talking about pain in the mouth or a toothache or things along those lines. I'm talking about the inability to eat, for example, raw fruit, the inability to chew up a green bean, a cooked green bean at that, difficulty mashing up steak or hamburger, and you get loose bits all around your mouth. These are all signs that patients may be having difficulties. And it's time to go see the physician and get a speech-language pathology consult.
2: Well, Marty, you know, we could go on for another hour and just talk about day-to-day speech pathology and other issues that you come in contact with, but I'm afraid we're out of time today. I hope you'll come back and join us again. How would we contact you if we have a loved one in the hospital and believe we need your care? Probably the best way to get in touch with me if you had questions about
0: patient care or even research is through my email address, and you can reach me at m. B. Brodsky at jhmi.edu. And then uh, the Twitter profile is at mbbrodskyphd.
2: Of course, Dr. Stephen Tabak, thank you so much as well. Medicine We're Still Practicing is produced by A.J. Mosley, Engineering and Mastering by Steve Rickyberg. Music for We're Still Practicing is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't have to hunt around for our next episode. We'll catch you next time, everyone. And oh, tell your friends not to be jerks. They should wear masks. And when it's their turn, get vaccinated. Have a good day, everybody. From Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.